So this morning I'm going to be looking at the story, the history of the Tower of Babel. I have always found this to be one of the most fascinating stories in all of the Bible, really. You, you get the feeling, it's, it's so odd in some ways, and it's like, what? Why did God put this here? And it, it's, it's at such a transitional point, you know, you're moving out of the first part of Genesis, and you're given this really broad overview of world history, but you're transitioning into a focused view of Abraham, and so this, this comes at a very pivotal shift in the narrative, and so you just, you get this feeling, like, this is really important. What is, what is this telling us? One of the other things I find fascinating about this, this story is, I, I was reading a commentary, and he had mentioned that, um, that the story before, so think of Lamech, we've talked about Lamech and his, his, his strength and his, his taking more than one wife. And he's like, this is really a picture of the lust of the flesh. And I was like, wait a second. So if we go back to the tree, you remember what Eve said? What it said about Eve is that she saw the fruit, that it was good. And what she saw was that it was good to make one wise. So that, that's kind of the lust of the eyes, isn't it? And so then we move to Lamech and around the flood, you know, the lust of the flesh. So, so what, where would Babel fit in there? Pride of life. So we have, we have some information that gives us insight into what the New Testament's talking about when it says those things. This is what the lust of the eyes is. It's desire for wisdom and knowledge outside of God. What is the lust of the flesh? Just grabbing things and, and devouring them and taking them for ourselves. And what's the pride of life? Building a life that protects ourselves from God and makes a name for us rather than for him. So there we have it. So I, I find those things just interesting as we're coming into this passage to consider and to think of. So with that, let's, let's, go, let's go into our passage. And I'm going to introduce this. I'm going to ask a question here. Is normal human existence insane? Are we all, in fact, under the spell of an evil genius? Just a question. On November 18, 1978, more than 900 people took their own lives at the behest of their cult leader, Jim Jones. Some of you were alive for this. As pictures and the story hit the headlines, people all over America were shocked. How could someone convince 900 people to kill themselves? Turns out Jim had convinced them all that he had a secret to obtaining a utopian paradise for which goal they were all willing to give their hearts and minds and to his depraved mind. The answer to the question, how could a man convince 900 people, we really should be asking, how did the devil convince the whole world to rebel against God and damn themselves? We say, those people are insane. Something wrong with those people. But when, when the world literally acts this way every single day, it's normal. It's just how we live. In our text today, this is very similar. What we have is a group of people coming together to form a utopian society. That's the goal. Protect themselves, create a stable system. This is what we're going to be reading about. And God doesn't like it. 
Now, I'm sure your mind are going, he's on off, is it? This is so pertinent for today. I know this applies too. Um, but let me unfold the passage, all right? Let's, get, let's go into it and see where God is taking us with it. So let's, let's go to Genesis 11 and begin in verse 1. Now all the earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about as they journeyed. Okay. They have, all have the same language. This is not surprising. As they all are descendants of Noah, the singularity of their language allows them, though, to collaborate. So notice they all have the same language, the same words. So they're not, they don't even have the same language. They're talking about the same things. And they're traveling together. So you get this group of people traveling and talking to one another. And what are they talking about? And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So they're looking for somewhere to settle, and they're talking about settling somewhere. Now I want you to notice, they're traveling east. When Cain rebelled against God and left his presence, left God's presence, he traveled east. This hasn't happened very long ago in the narrative, so we should continue to follow. Going east is moving away from the presence of God. Now, they were literally moving in a direction, but figuratively, for the narrative, we're being told that they're moving away from God, out of God's presence, therefore out of the security of his presence. You know that when Cain was getting ready to move out of the security of God's presence, you know what he said? Hey, God, I need you to make sure no one kills me out there. It created fear as he moved, but he still moved out of God's presence. Just make sure no one kills me, all right, and I'll leave. So just note that. They're moving east. They're moving out of God's presence. Then verses 3 and 4. Then... They said to one another, so now we get into what they're talking about. Come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. Let's make strong bricks. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar and they said, come. Now, I, I do want to make note again. Sorry, we got to stop again. Tar and the bricks are made from what's in the ground. Okay? God said, I have taken you out of the ground and to the ground you must return. And they're like, out of the ground we will build our security. Seems counterintuitive. Kind of seems insane, actually. If you believe God. If you don't, it makes perfect sense. They used the brick, they, made the, they got the mortar out of the ground. This mortar, this tar is, is just like petroleum, pure, thick, gooey. It's actually something the Babylonians did use for their building projects. It created quite a stable building. And they said, so we're going to use the tar for more. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let's make a name for ourselves. Now notice this. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. 
What is this building project about? What is driving its building? Some people say pride. Pride's involved. Pride is involved. But notice that word lest or in case. What's actually at the bottom of it is a fear. A fear of someone and a fear of something. If you really look at this, they're looking for security from something. Remember, the flood did not happen very long ago. They are living in an existence. It would be like a group of people surviving after an asteroid hit the Earth. We're talking dystopian. So they feel very insecure in their setting. Anytime the whole world can be wiped out. And we don't know when. But notice, why would they think that way? Because God's made a promise. God made a promise to Noah, I won't do this again. I am not going to flood the whole earth again. I am making this promise with you. And I'm going to put a sign in the clouds so that you will always remember that I made this promise. So what's really going on is they don't believe God. And they're moving out of his presence. They will not find security in God's promises they must then build it themselves. Do you see that what's really happening here is rebellion? What's really happening here is rebellion. So, we have all of this, and I want us to ask ourselves, who are they trying to impress? I say they're trying to find security, but they also said, let us make a name for ourselves. So not only are we going to build a secure place, but we are going to create our own identity. Why do they need to create their own identity? God gave them identity. Because they're not doing God's way. We will create our identity. We will start working on who we are. There's a philosopher in the past that dealt with this. It's actually where we get the saying, God is dead. But that's part of a story. And in the story, he's like, we've killed God, but we haven't created anything to replace him yet. So in this place, it's like we've left God, but we haven't created an identity yet for ourselves outside of God. So let us do that. Verse 5 comes in. Now the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. What is this telling us? God came down. God came down. They had not reached God. They weren't even getting close to God. God had to come down to them. But what it also means is God was far closer and far more aware than they thought he was. The wicked has said in his heart, no God, which means even if there is one, he's not paying attention. But God was imminent. God was close. God could see, and God did see. And not only can God see, but God can see, and God judges what he sees. So verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they have started to do. 
and now nothing which they plan to do will be impossible for them. This is God's judgment. When I say judgment, his idea of what's going on, what he thinks about what's going on, and what God thinks about what's going on is that these people together can do anything they want. In fact, they can indeed create an identity outside of God. But that's not good. That ends in destruction. And that's not what God intends for the human race. Ultimately, it's their salvation. But we'll get more to that. So verse 7, God acts. Verse 7, he says, I believe this is an inter-Trinitarian communication, so this is a let us, is God saying as the Trinity, let us do this. Another interpretation could be that he is bringing with him a group of heavenly, his heavenly host with him to do this. So like a leader of an army going out, let us go. So I think either of those or both uh, can be seen here. He says, and let us confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And it doesn't even say he did it. It just gives us what happened. It says, so the Lord scattered them abroad there over the face of all the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore it was named Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over all the face of the earth. Now, the Babylonians would disagree with this reason for their name. They would say, actually, no, that means the gateway of the gods. And historians would say, yeah, Hebrews, they must have got that wrong. No. This is God's definition of Babel. That was their definition of Babel. Because they, we, all of us in ourselves still think that we are the gateway to the gods. We are in ourselves, by ourselves, something special without God. And that we can create our own existence and well-being. All right. I want us to imagine for a moment, as we're moving through, because especially if we've grown up in church and we've heard this story several times, it can be easy to downplay what happens here. But I just ask you to imagine that you wake up in the morning and you go to work and you're working along and everything's going fine and suddenly you can't understand the guy next to you and you turn and you're like, what's wrong with the... can't understand you either. What, what is going on? I, don't, I need to go home. Will I understand my wife? Well, I understand, like, what is going on? You walk out the door, and all around you, you hear different people speaking different languages. People you're used to hearing speak English are speaking Spanish and Chinese, and they're just all speaking different, and they're all, like, all over the place. If that really happened, put yourself in that position. I guarantee you what, it would be pure terror. It would be the most scary thing. Your whole life is turned upside down. There is nothing certain anymore. Nothing that is stable anymore. Everything's going to have to be built up again. 
everything you've known, everything you do know has to start all over again because you can't communicate except with a smaller group of people. And I think something else must have happened here too. I don't know what, but this scattering, they didn't like sit back and just like, oh, what were you know? There's this like, boom. You know, I know when terror takes hold in a group of people, things get real ugly real quick. Especially since they all think they're gods. They all think they're building towards being great. So, like, you get thrown into this, and I have to take care of myself. There's no one to take care of me. I have to do this. So just imagine, so you put yourself in this situation. Because what I believe happened here was twofold. And I think it's the theme that we've talked about over and over again. It's mercy through judgment. This was judgment. This was terrifying. They had disobeyed God. God had told them to go and fill the earth. And they said, no, we're going to stay here and we're going to build a city and we're going to build it strong and we're going to build a tower and we're going to stay here for good. And we're going to make, as we work towards safety from you, God, as we work towards creating our own identity apart from you, God, we're staying here. And God judged that, and he did scatter. The word, Hebrew word here for scatter is to dash. It's like he picked up this whole society and went, mm, and all the pieces scattered all over the world. This is an interesting connection to uh, Psalm 2. It says, he who sits in the heavens will laugh. Then it says, he'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Very similar idea to what happens here. So there's a, there's a violence to this. There's a, there's a judgment to this. But at the same time, as we looked into Acts last week, we know that God says, I ordered where they all went. I set their bounds. And so while they experienced this shattering, it's like God directed where each piece would land. Why? Because he has something else he's working on. And that plan will continue. All right. So that's an overview of our passage. It's a, oops. It's a history of a mass delusion that involves a tower. The tower is what happened because they were full of delusion, that they were full of confusion because they had rejected God, the fountain of life. So the tower. So my sermon title, a little late now, but you probably saw it earlier, it's a tower and a tree. So now we're going to do a tower. What does this tower represent? I've already kind of talked about it, but I want to move a little forward um, and just give an overview of what we've already talked about. They speak one language, they communicate cordially on common goals and desires based on this communication. They plan and execute a building project that will vie with the heavens. They sound pretty sane. Sounds like good. Sounds more sane than the modern culture. We can't make peace on earth. What in the world? But the insanity is revealed. They forgot God. I put the picture of the stars here because I wanted you to compare the tower to the stars. Like this is, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. They're as different as the heavens are above the earth. So they're saying we're building into the heavens because from our perspective, from the ground, it looks like it. And God's like, you have no idea the distance between you and me. You're not challenging me. There's no way. You cannot. Do not. Please do not challenge me. 
So they forgot God. That's, that's insane because God's the one that created them. God's the one that put the flood on the earth and showed them that they couldn't really get away from him. They forgot he had absolute power over them. Hey, they were using language to build this tower. God only had to change one thing. He didn't have to make them weak. He didn't have to do that. He had literally had power over the communication that they were using to fight against him. And they still thought they could do it which I think is insane. God reminded them by making them all seem insane to one another. I say they're insane. Do you think they all seemed insane to one another all of a sudden? Do you see how God actually judges in a way that actually pictures the problem? The confusion they have because they're outside of God's will, this insanity they have because they're outside of God's will, is revealed so that they actually see one another the way God sees them. They're not speaking God's language. They don't understand him. And they are therefore acting insane. All right. Now, our time. Our battle. See that spaceship there? It's a new kind of tower. You know, as soon as we had the technology to get into the sky, we went there. And we went there hard. Why? You're like, because we're curious. Yeah. We want to know things. Yeah. What do we use all that space technology for? Come on, like, put satellites up. What are we using for? Protecting ourselves. What are we looking for? Asteroids coming. What do we want to do? have another place to go live if in case God destroys this one. We're no different than those people. No different whatsoever. We are exactly like them. We believe we live in a chaotic... Our God, our God is a God of chaos that we don't know what's going to get kicked out at us next. And so we're trying to protect ourselves from him. We're trying to repair we're trying to look. We're trying to see. But well, all our technology has done, everything that we have done, what are we building, what, why are we building, everything we've done has only increased our fear because we now know just how many things threaten our existence. And if we keep looking, we'll find more. Which should, which should humble us but it doesn't. It should drive us to a God who can protect us, a God who is a high tower that we can run into and be safe. Franklin D. Roosevelt said this, if civilization is to survive, we must cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples of all kinds to live together in the same world at peace. Sounds good. Missing something. I would say if civilization is to survive, we must cultivate a relationship with God. So what he's saying is not true. He's a great president, some people think, whatever. He's got the same mindset as the people at Babel. We have to find a way to make ourselves good enough to survive without 
God. Notice he says the science of human relationships. We have to study our relationships to understand what's went wrong when God's been telling us what's wrong all along. Notice what God says. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I would add some other things. I am the only one that forms light and creates darkness. I am the only one that makes well-being and creates calamity. This is what I'm saying here is... Humans have never had it in their power to create well-being for themselves, let alone save themselves once that well-being has been destroyed. We cannot create well-being from ourselves. Well-being is something that God gives us. We cannot create it. And the other thing we need to know, we've been talking about how God brings order out of chaos, but in this story, God brings chaos into order. He disorders their order because it's not his and creates his order out of that chaos. So God is the only one that has it in his power ultimately to destroy or to save the human race. The human race can only reject his authority. That's all we can do, and that rejection doesn't change the reality that he still has it. This is the most sad reality of the human state. It's revealed here in this story. God comes down on Mount Sinai and we see this, there's flashes of lightning and the sound of a trumpet and the mountain smoking and the people were afraid, obviously. And trembled. I would too. It says, actually says in the New Testament, Moses did. And they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us. We, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Notice what, what Moses says. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Why not? He says, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Do you know why they were afraid of God? Because they were planning on continuing to sin. They're like, we're not compatible with God. And they don't ask God, how can we be compatible? They just say, stay away. This is sad. Because the only way these people are going to live, the only way they're going to prosper, the only way they're going to have well-being is coming to God. And if they have to stay far away because they're incompatible with him, then they must accept death. They must accept not only to be at a distance from the lightning and thunder, which represents God's wrath, but in it. These are some of the saddest words in history. Jesus came into the, this coastland, and there was a demon-possessed man. He sent so many demons in him. And the man comes running down to Jesus, and what does he say to Jesus? Jesus, depart from us, the demons are speaking through him, because we don't want to be destroyed yet. But here's the saddest words, friends, in history. The people who are supposed to be saying... are begging Jesus for the same thing that the demons were.
They will not have life. When it came into their presence, they said, please depart. Why? You have life itself in front of you, showed you his power. But you notice the, the, the man who had, had the demons cast out, he wanted to be with Jesus. He really, and he's the only one that says he was in his right mind. But you know what Jesus told him? No, no. Because you know what? I think Jesus wept over this. He said, no, no, you go back. And you tell them, these people had told me to leave, you go back and you tell them what I've done for you. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, I guess you're gone. He did leave. What does that say to us as believers? If we're in our right minds, if we are coming towards God, if we're moving west when the whole rest of the world's moving east, what's our job? The tree. Our job is the gospel. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite. Look what's happening in here. Jesus' blood is working towards what these people were trying to accomplish on their own to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is doing what they wanted to do. This was God's purpose then at the Tower of Babel. He did want this for humanity, but not outside of him, but with him. There will never be lasting peace so long as humanity is at war with God and, his, and God's terms of peace are unconditional surrender to the rule of Jesus Christ. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You can say this, the ground has been crucified to me and I to the ground. My relationship, my ability to build myself up, I am crucified to that with Christ, lifted up from the ground in death so that I might live a new life in Jesus Christ that is not dependent on the whims and changes of a worldly system. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you see the security here is not in us. It is in the promise of God. We do not seek to create a new heavens and a new earth. We wait for them. 
We do not seek to create them. We depend on God's promise to give them to us. Heavenly Jerusalem is not built on earth. It descends to earth from heaven. We have to wait. We have to trust, and we have to be making disciples in the meantime. We are not in the Babel system anymore. We do not have to build a name for ourselves. Our name is in Jesus Christ. He has made a name for himself. He has a name that's above every name. Jesus Christ, his name every knee is going to bow. Our name is now in his name. We don't need to make a name for ourselves. And why is it? Because we believe that what he did on the tree surpasses the tower as far as the heavens are above the earth. It doesn't look like it. Tower, cross. Boy, that's big and impressive. That's small. In fact, it's not only impressive, that's shameful. That's ridiculous. From our perspective. What about you? Are you outside of the Babel system? Or are you still in it? You know, I, I put some questions here. Kind of help us to say, what, what system am I in? What am I operating on? What, what, what things am I operating on? Well, ask yourself, where's your treasure? Where is it? Um, Jesus says, where our treasure is, there our hearts will be. Where's your treasure? Are you building a treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt? So are you building one down here that you've got to die and leave? Secondly, what makes you feel secure? Feeling good, having a lot of money, or hearing God's promises? How do you gain security when you feel insecure? Do you start building? Building either protection or a system or something to help me so I can feel secure? Or do you trust in what God is doing and say, I am going to run into you, my God, the tower which keeps me safe? What scares you? What makes your heart beat faster? What makes you get stirred up? When you are afraid, do you pray first or build first? What do you do when you are criticized? You're like, what does that have to do with anything? It has to do with making a name for yourself. What do you do when you're criticized? When considering God's commands, do you consider first how it affects your plans? God's commands should interrupt your plans if they demand it. Are you working hard to establish yourself on this earth or hardly working on preparing to live in New Jerusalem? What are your priorities? Most importantly, do you love Jesus? Can I, and I ask myself this question, can you say with the Apostle Paul, indeed, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I'm asking you, not do you think you should 
agree with that statement. I'm asking, do you? Does your life prove it? You're like, I don't know what that means for me. The Word of God has a lot to say. Let's look at it. Let's question. Let's seek Him. Because it's worth it. He is worth it. He surpasses all things. Paul knew this. Paul was so, he was so deeply engaged with Jesus Christ. He, he, you can see him like throw one thing off and throw it and pretty soon it's like, Shh, get rid of all that. Christ is worth it all. Worth far more. We're, we're all in that process. I know I am. I'm still throwing things away. Every once in a while, oh, Jesus is worth, oh, get rid of that. Let's keep that process. But are you doing that? Or are you still trying to grasp as much as you can get a hold of? Find security. Find a name. Find anything. You see, this is why believers are called to the cruciform life, the life conformed to the cross. Naturally, our bent is towards the earth. We go to the earth and we start building bricks. And we start taking those bricks and we start building ourselves a city. We start building ourselves a tower. Why? Because we're going to stay here. Oh, that there would be more lives that look like that city of Babel, half-built and deserted. More of our plans, half-built and deserted, because we went and followed Christ. As the nets of the disciples lay unused on the seashore. Heaven is something to be accessed by building on, is not something to be accessed by building on earth. However, the cross lifts us from the earth to die to the world. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast, like I said. Far be it from me to boast. Do you know what he's saying? Far be it for me to boast in any other name. Any other way than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If this is not our home, if this earth is not our home, why are we building lives here? If this is all to be dissolved, why? Let us put up our figurative tent. We have to stay for a while. A temporary dwelling. We are waiting for the bridegroom. We are not here to stay. That's who we are. We're waiting for someone. We're not here to stay. You see how the cross is so clearly contrasted to the city of Babel? Can you see the city is doomed? Then go. Go out to the cross. The book of Hebrews says, let us go out to the cross. Let us go outside the city with Jesus. He means that. But we're like, hey, Jesus, can we be, if we're going to be crucified, can we at least be crucified in the city? But God is saying, come out from her. Come out. And he's actually talking about Babylon there. Come out of her, my people. Come out to me. Let's live beneath the cross of Jesus in the shadow. The new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Notice this. Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place. 
He didn't say, prepare a place for me. He said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And when I come, then we'll be together. Go and make disciples. Call them to what's coming. That's your job. And as long as we're doing other jobs, trying to do his job and our job, we're going to find a lot of trouble. But let's go make disciples. Let's go find people who need to know. Let's teach people who do know what it means to go outside the city. This is what the Tower of Babel story is supposed to talk to us about. It's telling us what the world does so that we can contrast it, which is what's coming next, to what God's doing. As we move into Abraham and the story of redemption picks up speed. With that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's truth to us. Oh, Father, I know there's so much that has gone unsaid. Stir up our hearts so we might dive deeper into your word and see more of your glory there. Father, lead us and guide us. Let our hearts be moved by your presence towards a true heart that says, I have suffered the loss of all things that I may obtain the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. We need you. We need your spirit. None of us can say that we are pure. We all need you more today than we ever have because we're moving towards New Jerusalem and we need your grace. We need your mercy. And we know, Father, you said the gates of hell will not prevail. Give us strength to fight on. Give us strength to move on in your power, by your grace, to your glory. And help us to wait patiently and expectantly and hasten toward your return. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hear the words of the Lord spoken to you, Ventura. Spoken to you, his children. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed. Amen.